I live in a very rural part of Gainesville and my inter internet access isn't the best. Um, luckily, my wife and I were able to get a second internet line to the house because she also works from home. So we're no longer sharing the six megabits per second. We each have our own six megabits. So it's been a little bit better for us. Um, and my uploading is still gonna take a while. So even this recording, and now that we've gone through today's session, I don't have to upload this recording. I may go ahead and just modify it to just the presentations, um, just because I know it's uh, been a very personal discussion tonight. So without further ado, let me go ahead and give you guys uh, my presentations here. Give me one second. Trying to get Kristen back into the class. I think she got dropped. All right. I think expired. Yeah, I think I just tried to get her back in. Okay. There she is. Hi again. I don't know. It just froze. That's okay. I'm going to go ahead and move on to um, the thermal injuries, unless you wanted to share anything from this week or the last few weeks? No, not really. <laughs> I don't want to go down that road right now. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's, uh, let me pull up. Can you see the presentation here on the screen? Oops. Oh man. All right. I'll just go through it this way. You guys okay with this, this view? All right. So thermal injuries, uh, and really, this portion of the, 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 the textbook with the chapter on, on traumatic injuries, it really just broke down into two categories. It has your burn injuries and your thermal, your heat injuries. And I just wanted to kind of briefly go over them. There's not many slides on this and I will share these slides with each of you um, as once we're done here, I'll go ahead and send those out. Um, but with burns, uh, we tend to see a, a lot of scald burns in pediatrics. Um, some of that intentional, some of that non-intentional. Um, we do see a lot of non-accidental trauma with burn injuries. Um, about 65 to 80% of those are gonna occur in children under the age of 14. Um, electrical burns are rare, um, but when we do see them, we usually see them from children sticking things into electrical outlets or chewing on electrical cords. So usually the injuries tend to be around the hands and fingers uh, or sometimes even around the mouth, um, which can also be quite interesting. Um, whenever we have burn injuries, you should always ask them what happened, identify the mechanism of injury, and then make sure that the pattern of injury matches, uh, the, the description of what happened matches the pattern of injury that you're seeing um, in, in the clinical setting or in the hospital setting. Because um, you want to always make sure that these kids are going home, back home to safe environments. Um, the textbook, I did pull out some of the... Um, I did pull out some of the, uh, the charts that they had in there for both this lecture and the next one, but they talk about some of the uh, zones of the injury. So you have localization or the zone of coagulation, zone of stasis, and the zone of hyperemia. Um, and burns can go through a series of both localized injury as well as systemic injury. Um, so this really helps to explain some of, some of the things that are occurring um, for your patient. 
one of the things we want to look at when there's a systemic response is making sure there's adequate um, uh, hydration. So really, really one of the first things that's going to happen is there's going to be a shift in fluids. Um, and then with the shift in fluids, you're going to have changes in your electrolytes. Um, patients that um, get burned, especially a, a significant percentage of burn, can develop what we call burn shock. So they'll have volume depletion. They get poor venous return, which in turn has uh, decreased preload, pre, uh, decreased cardiac output, hypotension, poor perfusion. So these patients come in looking very shocky uh, from the, tra the, the trauma of the event. Um, if we do not do a good job of fluid hydrating these patients, they can um, undergo conditions of, such as rhabdomyolysis, where muscle breakdown occurs, and then this will stockpile in the kidneys, causing renal failure, um, which can be very significant. The other thing that we worry about with our burn patients is inhalation injury. So depending on the type of burn and how that burn occurred, um, if there was a significant flame injury with uh, smoke inhalation, not only do you look for marks for soot around the face, but you also have to worry about the area internally within the airway that may also be burned. So often if the patient has a significant burn either to the face or there's a significant amount of soot around the face, we may electively intubate these patients um, to protect the airway because of that fluid shifting. Their airway may narrow down and decrease significantly, um, which can make it more difficult to intubate them later on when they start having respiratory uh, symptoms. Many of these patients are gonna go through a hypermetabolic response so with that hypermetabolic response, we're going to see an increase in the resting energy expenditures. And that's because the body is going through this entire process of repairing itself. So not only have you had the initial injury itself, but then you have this fluid shifting and now you have this increase in metabolic demand, um, which also is going to increase your cardiac output. Um, you're going to have uh, signs and symptoms of weight loss. So significantly, uh, initially you might see some weight uh, gain because of the fluid shifting, and then you'll see some weight loss. These patients will present with a negative nitrogen balance, um, and they'll have decreased energy stores, meaning they'll become more and more emaciated, um, less fat stores, and what have you. We can also have a disruption in the endocrine response too. You may see changes where these patients become very hypoglycemic, and that because of that hypermetabolic response, their gluconeogenesis is occurring at a much faster rate, um, and which is another reason why we, they require a higher amount of sugars and carbohydrates. So our types of burns we'll see, um, it used to be first, second, third, and fourth degree burns. Um, they've changed the, the, the terminology of it a few years back. Um, superficial burns would be like your first degree burn or your sunburns, and that's where you just have a discoloration of the skin. It doesn't go past the dermal layer. Um, it's usually just involving the epidermis. Uh, partial thickness burns um, we'll see with scaldings, um, and this is where the dermal layer has been disrupted. Um, there's an actual bubbling or blistering of the skin. Um, sometimes the skin may even slough off or, sh or sheet off that dermal layer. And then our full thickness burns um, can occur from uh, flame injuries, immersion injuries, chemical burns, uh, mechanical injuries. Um, so there's multitude there, and, and full thickness meaning we've gone past the dermal layer, down into the fascia, sometimes even into the muscle towards the bone, um, and we have that um, uh, significance there. Now, now, in the textbook, it talks about, and years ago, I remember being taught this, that if you had a full thickness burn, often these patients didn't feel any pain, or it wasn't very uncomfortable 
uh, for them. That's not necessarily true. If, if the, the, the burn itself goes down into the nerve and burns the nerve endings, the area in which the nerve endings are no longer present don't have any pain responses to. However, the surrounding tissue can be very uncomfortable and be very painful for them. And often these full thickness burns require debridement to allow for more viable tissue to uh, regenerate, allow for good blood flow. Um, if you've ever had the opportunity to see a patient in a burn unit, when they take them to the, the tub or the, the, the hydrotherapy, they really scrub these patients down to get all that dead tissue off, to allow that viable tissue to start regenerating. Um, usually these patients, they'll scrub them down until they bleed. And if you've never heard a, a patient scream before, usually that's usually the place you really get um, um, horrified when you know the patient's very uncomfortable. So pain control for those patients during that process is super important. Um, at the burn center here in uh, Gainesville and the same one that I used to work uh, down in Miami, there's usually a very large team of people that work with those patients when they're doing those debridements. So you'll have a couple of uh, techs. There's usually burn techs that help with the dressing changes that will help with the debridement. There's usually a nurse or two. Uh, often there's either a resident, fellow, nurse practitioner, or attending um, that's available in case there needs to be fasciotomies or assessments done on the patient during that time. And then um, there's usually someone that's monitoring that pain control. Um, and they're usually giving them high doses of medication to make them comfortable. Um, but at the same time, they're also watching their airway to make sure that they have a very good patent airway during that process. Um, so usually with these, um, the treatments can be very intensive. Now, if you're working in the emergency room or um, in an area that's triaging patients with burns, uh, you wanna know definitely the mechanism of injury. You wanna know the body surface area that's been burned and that's been involved. So they have different charts. I put two of them here from the book. There's the rule of nine, which is what I was taught many, many years ago. Um, but they have a, the London Browder chart is a little bit more specific in detail than uh, Chelsea. I know you've worked in with pediatric surgery and they deal with a lot of the burn patients at Shands. They do a very fine job of determining the exact amount of body percentage that's been burned. And then we treat that as such because in order for us to fluid resuscitate, and to monitor these patients and to determine their level of uh, severity, um, their projected morbidity and mortality, we really have to have a very good accurate measurement of the body area burn, body surface area burn. Not to mention when they go back to do grafting for these patients, it's important to know what area needs to be grafted, where they're gonna get their donor sites from, if they're gonna use uh, a homograph, autograph, if they're gonna use synthetic skin or other, um, um, options that are out there. It's always important to know what that body surface area is. And um, often when you work in triage with some of the trauma surgeons or burn surgeons, um, they can often tell you right off the bat when someone comes in what their chances of survival are, survival are based on their age and the amount of body surface area that has been burned. Um, because of some complications that can occur from this, um, it's super important to, to really get a good handle on that from the very beginning. So with our plan, some of the things that you definitely want to do is you want to, you want to get their baseline nutritional status. So it's unfortunate if someone comes in with a large surface area of burns and they're already malnourished. Um, so you want to make sure you get a good BMP, pre-albumin, albumin, um, to determine what their nutritional status is. You can also get a CRP um, and some of the other biomarkers for nutritional status. Um, the carboxyhemoglobin is super important because if there's been a significant inhalation injury, 
and we're worried about carbon monoxide poisoning, um, this will give us a good understanding from the very beginning with an arterial blood gas, what, the, what that measurement is. And then we can monitor that and um, manage that patient uh, from there. Our urinalysis is super important to assess for color um, because if you have that dark amber, dark brownish color, um, there may be concerns for rhabdomyolysis and we can then send off for other studies. Cardiac enzymes and EKGs are super important for patients who've undergone electrical burns because we're worried about their conduction system or disruption of the conduction system. Um, they may develop arrhythmias afterwards. So we wanna be very careful with them um, and getting baseline information with them and being able to monitor those serially, especially if there's a, any abnormalities. Uh, when we're doing our fluid resuscitation, and this is something that I would definitely make sure you understand and know for both my exams as well as other exams you'll see down the road. And that's how to use the Parkland formula to determine fluid resuscitation for a burn patient. Um, so generally patients that have burns that are less than 15%, um, they generally don't require much fluid resuscitation, but you may want to put them on maintenance. So someone who has a 5 to 10% burn will get maintenance fluid. Um, someone who has about a 10 or 15% burn um, may get one and a half times maintenance. And then with patients that have greater than 15%, you definitely want to use the Parkland formula. Now, the Parkland formula really is designed for the first 24 hours uh, of fluid resuscitation based on the burns. So you're going to do four mLs per kilo times the percentage of burn, and that's going to be your total for the 24 hours. You're gonna give half of that in the first eight hours and the other half over the next 16 hours. So the book gave you a nice exam. I gave you another example here is, you know, if you have a child that has 50% burns that weighs 10 kilos, it's four times 10 times 50, not 0.5, it's times 50. And you're gonna get 2000 mLs. So you're gonna get two liters. So they'll get one liter in the first eight hours and then they'll get the next liter over the next 16 hours. So it's important to know that. And if you have any fluid that was given in route, so for example, say EMS got the patient out of the fire, um, stabilized them in the back of the ambulance and gave them 500 mLs, that 500 mLs already counts for the first eight hours. So you would subtract that from the liter and then just give them the 500 and then give them the rest over the full amount. So you don't wanna overdo it by giving them too much fluid. So it's very important to uh, communicate and be curious with your EMS folks to find out exactly what was given prior to them coming to the emergency room. And if you're working in the PICU, you have to account for what was given via EMS, what was given downstairs in the emergency room, and then what you're going to give while they're being admitted in the ICU. Often, many ERs do a very good job, many trauma centers do a very good job of figuring that out for you, but sometimes it's up to us to make sure, number one, that that, 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 that amount is correct. And number two, sometimes they don't do it because there's a lot of patients that come in at once and you may have to, to determine that information. So go ahead and, and I would just jot this down somewhere. Make sure this is one of the formulas that you memorize um, and uh, you guys should be good to go. Any questions with Burns? Anything you guys saw in the reading that's uh, probing or different from what I've explained up here? I didn't go over everything in the chapter. I do, guys, I do want you guys to review it and read through it. Um, but these are kind of like the highlight points for this that I really wanted to go over. Next, we'll talk about uh, uh, some other thermal injuries. So hyperthermia 
uh, is something that we'll see often, um, especially here in Florida. We see that quite a bit. And understanding the mechanisms is super important. So you want to know what conduction means, what convection means, radiation and evaporation. So I kind of broke down the real basic definition for each. So conduction is really where water meets a surface and you lose heat from that. So a cool rag, a cool cloth, putting water on your, um, um, or surrounding or submerging yourself into like a swimming pool, you lose heat based on conduction. Convection is when you turn the fan on, you have airflow over a surface and uh, heat is uh, transferred that way. Radiation is a direct loss of heat. So if you're standing somewhere and you're just hot and you're radiating heat from your, from your body um, is another way to get rid of um, uh, heat. And evaporation is your body's response to sweat and the sweating process allows you to um, evaporate some of that heat loss as well. Some of the, some of the injuries that you'll see with heat injuries, uh, first the, and more mild uh, and probably more common is gonna be muscle cramping. Um, so you often see this, especially with uh, uh, adolescents that are active in sports and they're out in, uh, in a very warm environment uh, participating, they'll come in and they'll start cramping. And usually the cramping occurs in the larger muscle groups. So they'll often get cramping in their legs, their quads and their calves. Um, that usually starts cramping once they've stopped the physical activity. Um, and essentially here you've depleted volume and you've increased lactate buildup and you've had a change in your electrolytes or a depletion of your electrolytes. And that's when the cramping occurs in the muscle. Um, and often if it's significant enough, if you're the provider uh, doing the physical exam, you can actually feel uh, firm, palpable um, uh, masses in the muscle. And that's where the muscle is actually contracting and, and um, uh, becoming problematic, cramping up. Um, those are easily treated, replace fluids, replace your electrolytes and allow the child to rest and, and um, cool down. And that usually goes away. So heat exhaustion, uh, usually here we have someone that has more physical symptoms. They'll become nauseous. Um, they may, you know, become very sick. Uh, they're still sweating at this point, but they're profusely sweating. Their temperature is going up. Um, usually treated with some fluids, rest. Um, usually you can give them oral fluids and to chill out. Um, heat stroke is where you're becoming more prominently uh, affected. So these patients can actually have uh, cerebral stroke-like symptoms or effects um, because they've stopped sweating, they've depleted their, uh, their, 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 they have a huge volume deficit from the amount of sweating that had occurred previously, and they no longer have the, the compensatory mechanism to sweat. And because of that, their blood becomes more viscous, um, allowing them to have the opportunity for more ischemic type changes. Um, so that's something that could be uh, significantly um, problematic. Usually patients that have heat stroke, um, they're usually red, hot, dry. Um, they've been participating in a sport or an activity for a long period of time where they were initially sweating and they're no longer sweating. Um, and that's when they usually get into trouble and come into the emergency room. Any questions on thermal injuries? Pretty short and sweet, like I promised. Next, I will... One question. Go for it. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Hey, um, 
at some point, can you give us at some point some more examples for the Parkland just to practice? Sure. Um, How about, the one, I, the, I know the, the one in the book, it, um, it kind of threw in like a little trick, not trick, but like, you know, figuring out in my head, uh, you know, subtracting the amount of fluid, do you subtract it like from the original and then divide it amongst the two? Or do you subtract that fluid they got like in that first eight hour period? So if there's like more like that, that would be helpful. Yeah, I mean, if they got a significant amount of fluid uh, in transit, I would probably subtract that amount from your total from the Parkland formula and then divide the remainder up like you normally would. Eight, okay. You know, you half over the first eight hours half over the next. If they didn't get that much, I probably would um, just subtract it from the first eight. They're still going to get the same amount in the first 24 hours. Um, yeah. Either way, I'm not going to give you questions that are going to be so specific on that. Often what I'll do in real life when I'm working with uh, pediatric surgery, I'll ask them how much volume they want to give. And if there's been a significant body surface area burn, they may say, no, we want to definitely give them the half that they were supposed to get in the first eight hours, and then we'll subtract it from the back half. <clears throat> or they may say, you know, the burn surface area is not that much. Just go ahead and subtract it from the first, and we'll just make sure they get the full amount within the first 24 hours. So really, it's uh, communicating with that team to make sure you're um, together. But I can, I can actually give you some more. Do you want to do one now, or do you want me to just send you a couple of examples and you guys practice them later? Oh, uh, just like some, yes, examples later. Okay, I could do that. Just to like you practice guys. on our own. Sure, yeah. I'll do that. That's not a problem. All right, let me get a toxicology up here real quick. All right. All right. So toxicology, um, with the objectives for the for the textbook and for this lecture, I just wanted to kind of go over poison control centers, the general principles for um, to, um, ingestions, and uh, general principles about decontamination, as well as uh, how to manage specific. Uh, toxic exposures that we see in pediatrics. So the the, te the textbook the textbook gives you the national hotline number for the poison control center. However, for each of you that work in pediatrics, um, there should be a poison control number for your area that will give you someone either that's on site, like at Shands. I know we have somebody in Gainesville that does our poison control center, and I'm sure in Orlando, in Tampa, and Miami, you guys each have different uh, control centers. The nice thing about having those local numbers is your poison control center uh, person or representative that you're going to talk to on the phone is going to stay with you or with that patient throughout the hospitalization. So what they'll do when you make that phone call, you'll say, hey, I have a child here who ingested so much clonidine. This is what we've done already. Um, do you have any further recommendations? And they'll say, yes, we would like you to check these labs, check these, you know, um, um, studies and then call us back once those results come in. Uh, and the beautiful thing about working with poison control is they follow up with you. So if you haven't called them back in the specified amount of time, they call you back and say, hey, I'm so-and-so from the poison control center. I'm following up on 
you know, baby Jones and I wanted to know how things were going. So it really allows you to have an additional team member that's constantly keeping after this patient, especially if you're working in a unit or in an area that's very busy and you might forget or uh, get pulled away from things and they're always following up on it. Uh, they also are very uh, in tune with a lot of different guidelines. So if you have questions about protocols and things like that, they can forward those to you or, or get those to you um, to use while you're taking care for those patients. So definitely become very familiar when you're working in different settings, what your poison control um, number is and uh, utilize them often, that's my recommendation there. So for our general principles, often uh, ingestions by children are ten tend to be non-toxic. Um, and, the, and the big part of that is because a lot of things that can be very harmful taste terrible. So children will be curious, they put things in their mouth, they ingest a little bit, they usually spit it up or they'll vomit. Um, so often many of the ingestions we have don't require much at all. However, um, for some of the toxic things that they may ingest, a very small amount may be enough to have symptoms or be affected and often require observation. Um, so we may need to uh, do things that may need to bring them in. Um, and, and we could sit here and talk about different things, especially things that have hit the, the news recently. Cleaning products are usually a big thing. Tide pods or the laundry pods have become a very significant uh, item that has been, you know, we are seeing for toxic uh, exposures in children because it looks like candy. They're colorful, they're small. They grab them, first thing they do is stick them in their mouth, especially the smaller children. Um, and that could be pretty, pretty problematic. Now, often it tastes nasty and they spit it out. Uh, but you can imagine many of you are parents, you know, how that could be very frightening or concerning and usually they come in and we have to evaluate them. Uh, analgesics are another area that if we, you know, if they take, if they take someone else's medication, especially large amounts, you know, especially with the problems with fentanyl, codeine, um, oxycodone, all these other um, prescription medications, they can be problematic. Um, and then for those of us that work in the acute care setting, we also have to be aware that these patients can get overdoses um, from medical errors and things like that. So we want to be prepared on how to treat those patients and how to take care of them. And other things that we'll see that, that cause uh, significant issues are cosmetics and personal products. So again, the smaller children, again, like to put things in their mouth. Um, many uh, cosmetics may have uh, products in them such as wintergreen, um, which can lead to a salicylate um, overdose, and you'll have to treat them as such. Uh, so knowing, knowing a little, uh, a very good history of what they took, uh, and usually with examples of what they took, you can look them up and identify problems from there. Um, I, I pulled the table from the textbook on uh, GI decontamination. There's many different methods uh, from syrup of Ipecac to gastric lavage, activated charcoal, with and without uh, cathartic, um, as well as whole bowel irrigation. Um, and they do give you a nice little uh, description on how to, how, to, how to perform it for a child and as well as for an adult. Um, and again, when you contact poison control, they will tell you the steps to go through. I could tell you that syrup of Ipecac when I was a nurse uh, was something that we were always told that you should always have available and something that we would use. I could pretty much tell you in the last 10 or 15 years, I've not seen it used at all. Um, activated charcoal is something that we will use. Um, gastric lavage, depending on the ingestion, whether it's caustic or not caustic, um, or if there is good probability if the medication is gonna bind to the charcoal, 
uh, we will go ahead and give it. If it doesn't, then we won't. Um, so there's lots of uh, different ways to, decon uh, to, to, to utilize gastric uh, GI decontamination. Uh, I also provided an article with this uh, module from Maureen Madden on toxic exposures in children. And she had two very good tables in there that I, I felt were good study tables for exams. Um, and one goes over the common antidotes for your common ingestions. So for example, like with your uh, Tylenol ingestions, it has NAC, the N-acetylcysteine, or mucamus, which is the same, they're all the same medication. Your anticholinergics for your, um, you can give phosphostigmine. For your anticoagulants, you can give vitamin K or protamine. Um, so it's a nice little uh, identification of common ingestions or common things that may require reversal agents. Uh, so that's something there you can use for studying. And then the next table that she added in that article that I thought was pretty helpful was the toxidromes. So when you're dealing with different um, ingestions, you know kind of what to look for as far as symptoms, uh, as well as what could be the causative agents. And the two things on there, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about um, in, in today's presentation, are your anticholinergic uh, responses, as well as your cholinergic responses. So with our anticholinergic responses, there's a pneumogram of, you know, blind as a bat, red as a beet, dry as a bone, uh, mad as a hatter. So these patients have these anticholinergic symptoms. Um, and usually that's from uh, tricyclic exposures, tricyclic antidepressants. Um, and once you can identify that and you know that they've taken those medications, you can you know, readily move towards giving them reversal agents or supportive care. And then for our cholinergic patients or patients that have cholinergic type symptoms, they tend to have the nomogram of sludge. So that's salivation, lacrimation, um, urination, defecation, and I forget what the E stands for. And give me a minute. Anyway, it's in my lecture. And they also have bradycardia too. And these patients are usually exposed to organophosphates. Um, so these are your pesticides, um, you tend to see these more in farming communities where there's, been, there, there's a lot of exposure to different pesticides or there may be pesticides stored in the home uh, kind of thing. So it's good to know those uh, maybe for the exam in a couple of weeks or in future exams, just a little heads up. So let's move into some of the drugs that you'll see probably pretty commonly. So Tylenol overdoses we see quite commonly. Often this is the drug of choice that uh, patients that are trying to commit suicide or attempting suicide like to overdose on. One, because it's readily available. Um, if you ever go to Sam's or Costco, you see these massively industrial sized bottles of Tylenol that they have available. Um, and we have to be very concerned because there is a daily dose limit that we're concerned about because the primary organ that is affected by Tylenol is gonna be your liver. Um, so any adult that takes more than 10 grams or more than 200 milligrams per kilo in a 24 hour period uh, would need to be treated. And then for children, it's really broken down to uh, the amount that they've taken within the time frame that they've taken it. So in a single day, if they take more than 200 milligrams per kilo, that's considered something that we would have to look into or treat. Um, but if they've taken 150 milligrams per kilo per day for two days in a row, that could also be significant, as well as someone who takes 100 milligrams 
per kilo per day for 72 hours. So you definitely want to get a very good history of how much they took over what time frame for you to go in and treat these patients. Again, the drug of choice that we use for reversal for Tylenol is um, uh, your NAC or mucomist. Um, it now comes in two different forms. You know, years ago, we didn't have IV dose uh, and acetylcysteine. Now we do. And we can give that over a 72-hour, um, I have, the, have that reversed on my slide. So you can give the, uh, the IV dose over 21 um, hours to treat or your oral dose over 72 hours to treat. So I'm sorry, I'll fix that slide before I send it out. Um, and essentially what the NAC does is it acts as a, a glutathione um, to detoxify the drug, and then it converts to glutathione as well as it um, works and acts as an uh, antioxidant and free, radio, free radical scavenger to try to help remove the medication. Now, the importance of this uh, treatment is that it's most effective when it's done within the first eight hours. So, and that's from the first eight hours of ingestion. Um, if it's longer than that, there are timetables to try to treat these patients, uh, but the longer they wait to come in to be treated, uh, the more significant liver injury that will occur. And often, you know, these patients can have irreversible uh, liver failure. I've seen adult patients pass away from this in a very short period of time. And I've seen children get transplanted um, because of these ingestions as well. So you have to be you know, you want to try to treat them as soon as possible and as, as quickly as you can. When we look at our, um, our plan for these patients, we definitely want to get a Tylenol level when they come in, want to get a good history as to what happened. Um, and then you want to go ahead and start treating them accordingly. For our alcohols, first one we'll talk about is ethanol. So the book talks about ethanol, ethylene glycol, methanol, and isopropyl, uh, isopropyl alcohol. I'm gonna talk about ethanol and ethylene glycol um, in this presentation, because ethylene glycol and methanol pretty much have the same presentation. Um, ethanol has a little bit of a different presentation um, and isopropyl um, usually requires supportive care. And isopropyl is your rubbing alcohol. So if someone ingests that, um, you would just go ahead and treat them uh, more so from a supportive standpoint. So with ethanol, this is our alcohols, but we can find ethanol in other products around the home. Um, I remember when I was in the Navy in boot camp, uh, we used to have guys that would drink the mouthwash to try to get a buzz from it because it does certain mouthwashes contain um, alcohols in them. Um, and when you find patients that have um, an alcohol problem, they will look for things that have alcohol in it. Um, but you can have this as, and then for, for teenagers, this is something that you can easily purchase from a, from a grocery store or a drug store and not having to worry about finding someone to find them alcohol. Um, ethanol ingestions, when it becomes significant, can involve CNS depression, uh, uh, skin flushing, slurred speech, ataxia, vomiting. This is all we've seen from patients that are drunk. Um, but if they become more um, uh, toxic from it, that CNS depression could lead to respiratory complications. Um, and it could be to where they can't protect their own airway as well. Um, and I have had patients come in through the emergency room requiring intubation um, for at least short periods of time to help protect their airway. Um, for these patients, we want to provide supportive treatment, um, observation. Many of these patients will get admitted just to be uh, watched. When I was in the service, we used to do what they call drug watch, where we 
would admit them to the clinic or the to the medical units and watch them overnight to make sure that they're um, going to be protecting their airways. For most of our teenagers, when we see this, really they need to be monitored and observed. It's just to make sure that they don't have any complications from it. Um, treatment, you know, some of these patients can have or develop hypoglycemia, so you want to check their blood sugars as well as treat them with IV solutions that have dextrose in it, as well as look at their electrolytes. Now, treating patients with alcohol ingestions is going to be different from your elderly patients who are being treated for uh, chronic alcohol um, uh, withdrawals or things like that. So this is more so for someone who doesn't have that long-term problem with, uh, with alcohol. Now, ethylene glycol and methanol are both found in antifreeze. Um, uh, in your um, four-year patients who, your, your younger patients, they're attracted to this because it has that fluorescent green color. Um, it's sweet tasting. Um, so you can not only have children take this, but sometimes pets get into it because it has a very sweet taste to it. Um, and basically it metabolizes like ethanol, however the byproducts from it become more toxic. And if you guys go back a few modules to some of the lectures we had, we talked about metabolic acidosis and ethylene glycol and methanol are both part of the mud pilers uh, pneumogram. So we would definitely want to assess the patient's anion gap. So these patients have a very wide anion gap. So they'll have a gap number of like 20, 25, or 30. Um, and we would definitely need to treat them um, for that acidosis. So usually within the 6 to 12 hour uh, after ingestion, they'll have tachypnea, coma, uh, pulmonary edema, acidosis, renal failure, not only will they have a wide anion gap, but they'll also have a wide osmolar gap. They can have a drop in their serum calcium and they can start developing calcium oxalates in the urine. Now, the significance with ethylene glycol is if it doesn't go treated, it's almost always fatal. Um, and usually one of the easiest things we can do is put them on hemodialysis and dialyze off these byproducts. Now, the first time I've ever seen someone come in with an ethylene glycol ingestion, we had to put them on an alcohol drip. And what alcohol does is it binds with these byproducts and allows them to excrete them uh, a little bit more safely than having them just wreck, uh, wreck havoc on their um, liver and their kidneys. Mostly these patients go into a significant renal failure, um, may not recover from it, and then they, um, it can be lethal. There is a medication called, uh, foma, I don't even know how to say this, Fomipazole or 4-MP, which also kind of acts like um, infusing IV alcohol um, to help bind to those um, byproducts and allow them to be excreted. The next ingestion we'll talk about is iron. Um, iron ingestions usually occur, kids getting into vitamins, they take too many of them. Um, usually about four to six hours after ingestion, they start developing nausea, vomiting, metabolic acidosis, coma, hypertension, shock, liver failure, um, and if it becomes significant enough, they can have seizures, uh, coagulopathies, hyperlysemia, and leukocytosis. Um, we, we do know that activated charcoal does not absorb iron, um, and therefore it is not used in the algorithm to help treat those patients. We will give them crystalloids to help treat the hypotension and the shock. We'll also give them vasopressors. We found that giving them uh, sodium bicarb has been effective in treating their acidosis. And they can also receive medications to help 
uh, to help uh, bind to the iron, such as chi leading agents uh, as the defiroxamine methylator DFO. Um, and what that does is it binds to the free iron and it's excreted out in the kidneys. Our opioids um, have definitely been a, a big topic of discussion over the last few years. Here we have um, the opioids, essentially what they do is they're, they stimulate the receptor sites um, of innervated areas to allow natural occurring endorphins to work to help block or blunt pain. Um, some of the side effects these patients will have is they'll have this euphoria, they can become sedated, they can um, have decreased GI motility or decreased peristalsis. Uh, many of our opioids can cause a histamine release. Morphine is a drug that we give commonly in the units, uh, both in ICUs, cardiac ICUs, and even in the emergency rooms, that can cause a histamine release. So often when we give morphine, you can have a significant drop in blood pressure, and that's because you have this histamine release. It's also the reason why some patients complain of itchiness after getting a dose of morphine. Um, so just keep that in mind. Sometimes I use that histamine effect as a, as a, as a, as a therapeutic thing. Do you have someone that has an elevated blood pressure that you want their blood pressure to come down? You give them a little bit of morphine, you relax them, you take away their pain, and you also drop their blood pressure a little bit. It can also cause bronchospasm, respiratory depression, um, and in severe cases, it can cause seizures. Now, there are other opioids that can cause uh, QT interval um, prolongation or prolonged QTC. Um, and there are other um, opioids that can actually induce seizures. Uh, I think tramadol is one of them. So definitely when you're looking at the medications that they've ingested, you know, do, you know, do a quick uh, review to see what those uh, med medications can interfere with. Um, the other thing you need to worry about with opioids is withdrawal. So if you get that heroin addict that comes into the emergency room and you're treating them with Narcan, um, you have to be prepared for those withdrawal symptoms um, as you're giving higher doses of, of uh, Narcan to, to treat them. You also want to definitely get your poison control center involved to see if there's anything else you need to observe, evaluate for, or to treat with. Um, always always, always ABCs, make sure that their airway is well supported. Um, you can send off toxicology screenings. Uh, I can tell you nowadays, there's things that we don't test for or can't test for. Um, synthetic marijuana has been one of them. Bath salts was another one that we were looking at a few years ago. Um, so you definitely wanna be aware of what your toxicology screens can and cannot test for. Uh, Narcan is a, is a great drug. It can be given IV, IM, sublingual, subcutaneously. It can even be given down the endotracheal tube. However, it does not have very good bioavailability given orally. So um, with Narcan, um, often we'll give it IV um, for severe cases. Uh, if someone has arrested um, because of this overdose, you can give it down the um, ET tube if you need to. And then again, you wanna support additional symptoms such as acute lung injury, prolonged QT, uh, as well as respiratory depression. Uh, next, you have your organophosphates. I've listed a few common ones here, uh, which are mostly all pesticides. The other organophosphates that you may see, I don't think we'll ever see it here domestically in the United States. I did see it, or we did uh, prepare for it when I was in the service, are your nerve agents. So nerve agents work exactly like your organophosphates. And what they do is they cause these cholinergic responses where you have this excessive amount of salivation, um, start tearing significantly, um, and then basically what happens is 
these secretions fill up your lungs and then you stop breathing because you've had this, uh, this overwhelming response. Um, there is, however, some treatments for these. With your organophosphates and your pesticides, we have two medications we can give. One is atropine sulfate. Um, and what that does is it, it um, blocks the cholinergic response because it's an anticholinergic. So it helps reverse those symptoms. And the other medication is called 2-PAM chloride. Um, and that's a medication that you can give intramuscularly or uh, intravenously, which will help reverse those responses as well. And again, anyone that comes in or presents with an airway complication or has any type of circulatory issues, you want to support those and follow your ABCs. Um, and in severe cases, some of these patients may even require mechanical ventilation. Next, we'll talk about um, salicylates. Um, so your aspirin overdoses. Um, aspirin, we don't really see given to children very often. We do give it to our cardiac patients in the cardiac community for its, uh, uh, its effect on platelet aggregation. Um, but we don't routinely give aspirin for fevers or anything like that. We do give it in Kawasaki's disease, and we do give it to our cardiac patients. Um, years ago, with chronic administration of aspirin, we would see um, Bry's syndrome, which is another disease we don't see very often anymore. But we do know that there are salicylates in uh, common household products, such as oil of wintergreen, um, wart removers, um, acne preparations, and muscle rubs. So any child that gets into those things, this should perk up some attention to investigate a little bit further. Uh, these patients too also have a very wide anion gap. Again, these are part of the mud pilers uh, nomogram that we talked about previously. Um, they can also have a respiratory alkalosis with their metabolic acidosis. The respiratory alkalosis occurs because of the direct stimulation effect from the drug on the respiratory center in the brain. And it usually precedes the metabolic acidosis. Um, other symptoms they may have is nausea, vomiting, hematemesis, uh, excuse me, tinnitus or ringing in the ears, uh, tachycardia, tachypnea, dehydration. And in your serious cases, they can have coma, delirium, seizures, rhabdomyolysis, pulmonary edema. Um, we treat them with uh, GI decompression with activated charcoal without a cathartic. Uh, we check their aspirin levels. We give them IV, IV fluids. We have found that sodium bicarb, one to two MEQs per kilo, can help treat um, this uh, uh, metabolic acidosis, as well as we'll often put them on bicarb infusions to help alkalinize the urine. Uh, we're definitely going to evaluate and treat for any type of hypoglycemia. We'll treat their seizures with benzodiazepines. Um, and you want to do a thorough and, and, um, a workup on them, including a chest x-ray, blood gases. And in worst cases, they may require hemodialysis. And then lastly, we'll talk about tricyclic antidepressants. Um, again, we don't see these too commonly given in the pediatric populations unless there's a significantly known um, um, psych history. Um, the, the big problem we see with these type of overdoses is that there's a family member with a psych history that has these medications and the child gets into them. Uh, amyltryptyline, um, uh, dexapin, and a few other medications are the ones that are probably the more common ones that you'll see. And usually they have a potent CNS and respiratory depression. They also have cardiac involvement because there's a sodium channel blockade. Um, they also have an alpha adrenergic blockade where they have a hypotension. Um, so they can have all four of these symptoms. And the big thing that we look for is that anticholinergic activity. 
such as, you know, hot as a hair, blind as a bat, red as a bee, dry as a bone, mad as a hatter. Uh, to treat them, we'll give them a, G, a GI decontamination, support their ABCs. We definitely want to give them benzodiazepines for their seizures. We'll also put them on sodium bicarb, which will help treat some of their wide uh, QRS um, arrhythmias. We'll, we'll shoot for a goal of uh, pHs of 7.45 to 7.55. We'll give them IV fluids and again, support them uh, with agents such as norepinephrine, which has a direct um, alpha adrenergic activity. All right, so those are my two presentations. Any questions on toxicology? I went through those pretty quickly. If you guys read through them, it's very similar to what the textbook talks about. Um, you will, you know, you may be, uh, see questions on um, the presentation, how a child comes in and you wanna know what may be high on your differential list. For example, if a child came in with symptoms of, uh, you know, the, you know, sludge, you know, with their, you know, salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, uh, maybe something that you wanna investigate further, especially if there's a very limited history kind of thing. Um, Do we need to know um, all the antidote, like dosing stuff? Do we need to have that memorized or? No, just but I like would definitely know that. I would, I would know which medications help treat it. Right. Um, right. You, which, you know, you, sh okay. you should always be in the habit of looking those doses up. And the doses may change depending on the age, as well as the timing in which they ingested the medication, especially like with your mucamist for your uh, Tylenol overdoses. So you probably wouldn't get a question on the actual dosing, but we definitely, you, I would wanna know that you know that you're gonna give your N-acinocysteine for Tylenol overdose, and you would treat your salicylate overdoses with bicarb, um, as well as supportive therapy, um, those kind of things. And know your toxidromes. Not only is it gonna help you in practice, but it definitely will help you on your exams. All right. Any other questions? So if you were due to present this evening, just go ahead and upload your presentations to Canvas. I'll make sure that there is a, uh, a place for you guys to do that. Um, if, please read through everyone's um, presentation. I know some of you put time into those. Um, and actually, I would be, it, would be, it would be great if you gave each other feedback on those presentations. So once you see the presentation, just go in there give them some comments or feedback on those presentations. I'll be doing the same um, and have those up over the next, you know, if you can upload them tonight, that'd be great. If you can have them up before the weekend, that'd be great as well. I'm working on uh, voicing over the lecture for immunology and rheumatology. I hope to have that up to you for tomorrow. Um, so be on the lookout for that. And then I'm also gonna try to get the hematology oncology lecture done um, before this weekend, so you guys have plenty of time to review both of those modules before the exam. Um, if there's any questions, you guys. I had a go question. Ahead. Go ahead. I just had a question about the discussion boards. Um, we have our medication discussion board due this Sunday, and mm -hmm. I think that's our third and final one. And then moving forward, um, like I was just looking at the schedule, and I know that there's like new content this week, and I think new content next week, but then not really new content after that. So how many more discussion boards do we have after our medication discussion board this Sunday? I would just do your medication discussion board this Sunday. And then I would rather you focus on studying for the final 
So don't worry okay. about any more after that. So just do your discussion board for this Sunday and then that'll be the last one. Great, thank you. Yep. Please, if I would start thinking about items that you want to review for the review. I'm not gonna go from start to finish. I'm really gonna ask you guys to uh, give me topics to review with you. Um, so I will go over like your procedures, your ventilators, ventilation. Um, I'll go through some other things, but I want to hear from you areas that you guys want to review. So send those to me via Canvas. I'll, tonight I'll go ahead and put up a discussion uh, board for review questions, and then I will use that as my template to review for you guys next week, okay? And then if there's anything you guys think of during the session that you guys want to go over, please feel free to, to bring them up and we'll go over them then. All right? You guys are doing a great job. Semester is almost over. We only have a couple weeks. I know it's been a bit of it's been of a crazy ride for everybody, but please keep doing the great things that you guys are doing. I'm very proud of all of you. Um, I couldn't have asked for a better first class for my very first course that I've been teaching. So keep up the good work. And uh, if you guys have any questions, I'm always here for you. Shoot, you know, send a shout out. If you guys need someone to chat with, I'm here for you as well. Okay. So feel free to, you know, call me up or shoot me an email or just shout out. All right. All right. You guys take care. I'll see you next week. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank Bye. you. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Hey, Dr. Mamie, I have a question totally unrelated to probably anybody else in the class, but just regarding our um, uh, new schedules that we got. I don't know if you were able to see my email yet regarding like changing my schedule? So yeah, so the new schedules that came out really reflect the fact that we may not have clinicals for the BSN to DMP students for next semester. So that kind of fits, you know, the post, the post master certificate folks, you guys should have gotten an email that we, with the current, the way things are right now, we don't have any sites that are taking students. So when we go into the summer session, I don't know when the clinical sites are going to open up. So we didn't want to have you guys register for a course and then not see any clinical in there um, and then get an incomplete and then have to pick up those hours in the fall. So the BS and the DNP students, we, you normally built into your current program would not have had clinical at all in the fall. So what we did was we just shifted the clinical course from the summer to the fall. It actually gives you two more weeks to get those hours in. The postgraduate, the postmasters folks, we're gonna give you guys two options. One is you can sign up for the, the B, the summer B session, which is the back half of the summer. So our summer courses are your A, which is the first half of the summer, B is the back half of summer, and the C is the entire summer. Normally all the nursing courses that we teach are C courses because they span the full uh, summer um, program length. Um, but we know that the, I know I've talked to Arnold Palmer, they're not, they're not anticipating allowing students back really before June 1st. And really depending on how the pandemic plays out here in Florida, that could be as early as June 1st, or it could be as late as the August or so. So I don't want you guys to, to, uh, to miss out on clinicals. So my suggestion would be, you know, sign up for the, the summer B course. 
And once those clinicals open up, you guys will get slid into those courses. Now what it'll do is it'll give you less time to get 144 hours, but it will allow you to get time to get your hours in. Because many of you didn't get your full 144 from this semester, so you're already in a deficit for hours. And I don't want to push your graduation back at all if I can. Um, and if I do, I only want to, you know, it may only be one semester. I was, okay. I was kind of referring more to like, like my personal schedule. We had talked about it on the, um, on campus days. Yeah. I hadn't, my... looked, I hadn't looked at it any further until we figured out what we were doing with these. I can look okay. at it again and you and I can go over it together offline. Okay. Perfect. All Thank right. you. Yep. Any other questions about those summer clinicals? So if, say that uh, I was at Nemours, so say Nemours says, hey, June 15th, you can come back. Will we be able to go, would we, I mean, I, it may still all be up in the air, but would we go back to where we were? Like this semester, or we Someone else asked me the same question. I have to find out, because the school does have these, these written rules that you're not supposed to be doing clinical outside of courses that you're registered for. And some of that is for legal reasons. Right. So if you're in a clinical setting um, at a time when you're not in an actual course, that can mess things up. Um, the other issue is we don't want to we don't want to charge you for. You, you have to pay for your clinical courses like you pay for anything else. Like when you're in clinical, you paid three credit hours for this semester. Um, we're not giving anyone an incomplete for this semester because of the current pandemic. Um, in the future, it could be the same thing, I don't know. But we don't want you to register for courses that you won't be able to get your clinical hours in, because that's like you paying for a class that you won't be able to complete. Um, that was the reason why we sent those, those memos out, and that's the reason why we switched up the curriculum so that you're not put in a place in which you're, you're, you're paying for something that you're not getting, um, or you can't achieve, right? I'd, I'd hate right. to give you, you know, four weeks to get 144 hours in because you're working a full time. I mean, that's impossible to do. So I, I really want you guys to have the, the best option to complete the hours and do them appropriately. Now, if you're doing clinicals, now I, I have been told for previous, like for the fall, you were not allowed to do clinicals outside the semester dates. However, we have talked about making some of those changes. So once I find out if you can do those, I will let you know. Okay. Yeah, Part of, like, a lot of it has to do with contracts and stuff. It, like, we had already paid for it. We'd already done it, you know, that kind of thing. But I know the dates are different. So, yeah, yeah. I guess just let I, us know. Prior to all this, I even asked if you guys could do more hours in one semester so you can have a lighter semester. You know what I mean? So, like, for example, if you were in a regular spring semester without a pandemic, if you wanted to do 180 hours versus 144, then it could lighten your load up for the summer. And they told me they couldn't do that based on their current contracts because you've paid three credit hours for 144 clinical hours. And if you go over that, it becomes problematic for whoever they use for their accounting stuff. So I think, I think, I think we're at a time where that we, we may, we may bend those rules a little bit so you guys can get your hours in. I have a question. Um, I know we asked you, ask you on the, the day of the on-site visit when we did our um, our lab that day about using those hours. So I just had some coworkers that are at other schools and they actually gave them credit for those hours that they were there because some of them were short. Right, so those hours, and, I, and 
I had discussions with the CEO from the PNCB about this. Um, so the hours that you got for the onsite visit do count. They count as what we call indirect clinical hours. Um, so they will be added to your total. However, in order to sit the, the, the certification exam, you need 500 of direct patient care hours. So you still need to meet a minimum of 500 touching and talking to patient hours. Um, for, our, for, for your total hours, they'll be added to them because if you go to the PNCB website, they do recommend 600 clinical hours. Um, 500 have to be direct patient care. The other 100 Dr. can Mimi, be made up of- is this including the 144 we did last semester in primary care or is it five? So your 144 from last semester count as direct patient care hours. Okay. The, postmaster, the postmasters folks weren't in that fall class. They started in January. So their direct, their direct patient care hours started this semester. So we I do gotcha. give, okay. so to answer your question, answer. we do give you credit for the, the onsite visits and every time you come in to do simulation. In fact, these seminar hours, like tonight count as uh, clinical hours because this is part of your clinical course. The, the difference is, is they don't count towards your direct patient care hours. They're just added to the, your cumulative clinical hours, if that makes sense. So, and every I school does to... that. Every school, even people that go to other schools, they can't use these hours as direct patient care hours um, because we try, we, I, they follow the same rules that we follow. They'll add them to their total clinical hours, but they can't use them as direct patient care hours. So I have like a draft that Mailing sent me like last summer when I was just like inquiring about the program. Uh -huh. And it had 144 for spring, 144 for summer, and then 192 for fall, which that right. only adds up to 480. So, right. so is for that your No, for the postmasters sure. folks, because all of you are PNPs, we're allowed yeah. to add 144 of your primary care hours to okay. your program hours. So you guys actually don't need the full 500. You need the difference of that 144 from that. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it's a little Thank bit, you. it's a complex because there's, there's the DNP, there's a BSN, the DNP students that had, they need to, they need a thousand hours to yeah. graduate. 500 have to be direct patient care hours. The rest is made up between residency project and the, the indirect hours. For the postmasters folks, you walk okay. in the door with clinical hours from your previous degree, and then we have to make up the rest in those 500 direct patient care hours. Gotcha. Thank you. Thanks for bringing that up. I forgot to mention that earlier. Cool. Does that help? So you guys, when you're when you're calculating your hours, you know, calculate what you've currently done this semester. Add the 144 from your previous um, degree. And then the difference of that is what you need to need to have before graduation. Now, if in the fall you feel like you can get more than your, if you can get all your hours in that you need left, um, I would say go for it. I don't know where you guys are at as far as being able to do that. Um, I'd be more than happy to work with every single one of you with your, your uh, clinical sites to see if we can get two preceptors in case you wanted to do more hours. Um, I just don't know how that's going to work. I know that not just our program, but other programs are in the same boat. So a lot of people are going to try to get as many hours as they can. Um, so we'll see. Um, how, we'll see how it plays. I had another question. Uh -huh. um, in our PICU right now, because that's where I would like to do 
or where I was planning on doing like summer and maybe fall. Um, mm-hmm. We only have one nurse practitioner. The rest are PAs. How, mm-hmm. like if I was with that nurse practitioner um, and like, let's say like our schedules didn't align to where I could be with her, like based on like my work schedule and her schedule, like if she was working a night I was working, would I be able to like follow like would I just have to follow the doctor that day and not you, the PA you or so the guidelines, the, unit, the guidelines so. for Flor- for Florida is you can follow a nurse practitioner or a physician. Okay. I don't think you can follow a PA, but your PA can't be your primary preceptor. So if your yeah, primary I mean, preceptor yeah, is yeah. an NP, that's fine if you're with them for a day or two. What we yeah, don't want is for you to do all your hours with the PA and only a couple yeah. of hours with the NP. Gotcha. Um, okay. So, you know, they, when I, when I was, um, when I was in my, when I was in school, I actually followed an NP and a doc um, throughout my whole time. Cause it was just easier for me to get my hours that way. And it worked yeah. out well for them cause they needed the additional help when I was there. So mm-hmm. I would say go for it. Okay. Cause you're going to present you. the same. You're presenting the same in the PICU, yeah. you're treating the same illnesses. I mean, yeah. there's opportunity for procedures. You're doing the same thing. The difference exactly. is, is that PAs are trained differently than NPs. So they just don't want you guys have you utilizing them as your primary preceptors. And there's some okay. amazing PAs out there. I'm not talking yeah. them down at all. It's just kind of, it's more uh, logistic paperwork <laughs> stuff, right? Okay, thanks. All right. Any other questions? Thank you. Um, I just wanted to clarify. So with these hours, like, I mean, just for simple math, let's say we got 100 hours this semester and we're lacking 44 from this semester. Am I understanding correctly that we're going to be able to make those up in the future semesters with those other 144? Because right. I think right. I heard you say it doesn't yes. count for us to go over the 144. No, no, we're actually, so let me back up. There was one question, could you do clinical hours in a semester where you're not doing clinical? I'm not sure. Right, and I understand I'll that's a no. In right the now. other semesters, like for example, for, the, for you and the postmasters folks, you guys will be able to do more clinical hours to catch up those hours. That's the only so way like, you're gonna be able to do it. We can't, I don't okay. wanna give you an additional semester of clinical. It doesn't make sense. Okay, so it will be so, allowed in the so, fall for us right. to do 200 and then right. in the spring to do Correct. whatever. Correct, okay. yes. That, that, no, the, the, the previous rules are being changed because of what's going down. Okay. Now, gotcha. for this, for if you've signed up for the summer B course for the PNP folks, and you don't get your full 144 in, from what I'm being told, you'll get an incomplete for the summer, and then you'll have to make them up in the fall. So, for those of you that are seeking tuition reimbursement, be careful with that because I know a lot of times with tuition reimbursement, if you don't get a satisfactory or a certain letter grade, then they don't reimburse your money. So if you do, if you do decide to do the, 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 the summer B, I would try to get all your hours in for the summer B. Yeah, I hear you corrected it. We are going to get a satisfactory for this, for this semester. semester. Right, okay. but I'm being told that for the summer, if you don't finish all your hours in, there's a chance you might get an incomplete for it. We can opt not to register for the summer and just do it in the fall. You can. That was the other that was the other thing that the school is doing. If you feel that you're not gonna get your hours in and you just want to try to gun them out in the fall, you can just not do the summer courses and then just pick back up again in the fall. 
and and I'll, and I'll tell you that we're prioritizing the clinical sites too. So my, my postmasters folks will get priority because your graduation date is set currently for December. And I have two students that are supposed to graduate in August will get priority over everyone else because I want to try to make sure they meet their, their graduation dates. My BS and the DNP folks, you guys still have a little bit of time. I think you guys still have another year and a half, I think, after um, the summer. So I could try to really get, yeah, you have, well, I don't want to give you more time than you actually have, but you have more time to get those hours in um, and you'll be able to do it a little bit easier than the folks that are trying to get done sooner. One more question, just to follow up with the hours. Um, what if we can't like get our hundred and like, cause I know like when I last semester with primary care, it was a beast just to get the 144 hours because my clinical location was far and my, my preceptor was part-time. So like, what if that happens in the fall or in the spring? And like, what if we don't reach our hours in those 144 or with those 144 and 192, if we're not extending clinical like past the last day of class I just don't I just don't know like would that be would we get another opportunity another semester or yeah so you'll have the rest of your program to finish those hours up so so there not, is a not, possibility there's a possibility that if you like say for example if you in the in the fall say you want to do 192 hours because you have that opportunity with your preceptor I'd be more than happy right. to fight fight to make sure you guys can do that and then in the spring, when you would normally need to do 192 hours, you can break it down to 144 if you had to. I just need to make sure that when you sign up for a course, that you're not paying for more clinical hours than what you're getting. You right, I understand, but I'm just thinking, yeah, I understand. I'm just thinking though, like, obviously we all need 144 and we all need 192 still, because we still have two more clinical courses. But right. like this semester, I was only able to get 87. So whatever, 144 minus 87, I still right. need to make up. And you should it be able to make those up during those other two courses. Okay. So we're just expected to be able to roll those over. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And to be honest with you, as long as you meet 500 direct patient care hours, you're going to be okay. Because the remaining hours for the BS and the DNP folks, you can make those hours up in residency um, for your DNP. So your residency for your DNP is, is a little bit different. So you need five, there's two things. You need 500 hours to sit the PNCP exam to become a nurse practitioner. You need a total of 1,000 hours to graduate with your DNP, right? Typically in the past, 624 hours, which is 144, 144, 144, plus your 192 was 624 hours. And then you had like 250 hours of residency and the rest was made up in your project. Now what we've done is we've allowed you to, you, once you meet your 500, the rest can be made up in indirect hours. So I'll count these seminars. I'll count the on-site visits. We're actually going to do seminars this summer. So you'll get some more hours then. Um, and then you'll be able to do other residency projects that you would normally do for your residency for your doctorate. Does that make sense? So you'll have, you'll be, you'll have plenty of time to make those hours up. It's just going to be a little different than our traditional way of doing it. I don't, hopefully, you know, if everything goes well, I don't see, foresee any, I would hope that no one has to push back any graduation dates or anything. It's just a matter of being able to, you know, get in there when, when, when we're trying to figure out how to rearrange mine to graduate sooner. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other thing that we're worried about too is, you know, that, you know, right now there's not a lot of stress on some of the healthcare systems. 
but there might be, right? And if, you know, if there's a lot of stress on a healthcare system and they say you can have students back, I don't know if the preceptors are gonna be ready. I don't know if the clinical sites are gonna be ready. You know, some of you have told me that your units are completely empty. You know, how soon will they fill back up? You know, so those, there's a lot of unknowns that we're still trying to navigate through. And, we, and Dr. Love, myself, Dr. Hayes, Dr. Nellis, and a few other folks, we talk about this weekly, trying to figure out what's gonna be our best option for you guys. So as, as I hear things, I, I'm giving them out to you. And if anything changes, you guys will be the first to know. All right. Thank you. Yep. Thank Any you. other questions? Thank you so much. No, I just yep. had one I wanted to yeah. show um, to the nurses that, well, ones that are still working, that have to wear masks all day, every day. We made these headbands. I've seen those. Yeah. That's so cool. You wear it and the, mask, the strings of the mask go around the buttons because wearing the mask all day, like your ears start burning. Yeah from the strings behind your ears and they're very comfortable and plus it keeps your hair up and out of the way. So mm. just a I don't know if I would ever wear How one of those. <laughs> well not you. Everybody else had taken I don't have one. I haven't done it yet, but just a piece of um, ribbon and done the same thing. And so just put the buttons on the edge of the ribbon so you could put here. So you could do yeah. like so they were saying like for men, it was like just a black strap with like two little buttons yeah. on it, but it would hold right. it because yeah, it kills your ear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you've seen those pictures of those Italian healthcare workers with the the marks on their face and how tight they were wearing their masks. It's pretty. No, impressive. that's what my N95 because it has the stretch, you know, and so right. it's up above my ponytail. And if I take it off, but yeah, it's constant. It's pushing my glasses into my eye, like it's all day. But hey, I didn't get COVID when I worked with that woman, so I'm like, all right, whatever. Yeah. Karen, how so did I've, you decide I, how far apart to put the buttons? Like, is there a certain measurement you guys did or you just eyeballed it? You see the um, the little stitch in the, of the headband? Yeah. If you use that as your center mark, and directly she just put them toward the end. Like if you On flip either side. Okay, cool, thank you. You're welcome. Now I've seen some folks at Arnold Palmer that have these UCF masks and headbands. I need to start seeing some that say UF. <laughs> And if anyone's selling one of those masks, I want one. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to start wearing, um, some of us are going to start wearing um, head bonnets just to keep our hair like, yeah. covered yeah, up. Yeah, I already, yeah. Have my, I already have my UF surgical cap that's definitely coming with me to work. Nice. Yeah, we, nice. Got, we had an RT making the hats and a girl making the hats as well. They were selling them for $10 a piece, but I've been wearing one every day. And if you don't, just call like your central supply. And as for the surgical bonnets, because if mm. you don't have that, it's another way of keeping your hair protected as well. Yeah, yeah for sure. Mm -hmm. All right, guys. You guys take care. I will uh, see you guys next week. All right? Thank you. Thank All right. You. See you. All right. Bye-bye.